Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet wasallam, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Al-Maghrib Live Virtual Seminars. For those who want the classroom experience and the comfort of the home all at once, Al-Maghrib Virtual Seminars are live online sessions taking everything great about on-site classes, the immediate feedback, interactions, and the company of fellow students and bring it to you in real time. You can study and interact with your favorite instructors from anywhere in the world at the time zone that works for you. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa la amma ba'd. If you notice in your notebook, it, uh, it says the opponents, right? The opponents are challenges that the Prophet ﷺ faced. They're divided into three, which is intimate, external, and internal. So when a person has challenges, a lot of time they'll think that, you know, you have external challenges, which is, you know, obvious enemies, like Abu Lahab was his enemy, right? Abu Jahl was his enemy. Or, you know, uh, the Yahud in Medina or the Munafiqeen, they're external enemies. Then you have intimate, right? Intimate is sometimes in a person's own family or things that are happening in their own household. For example, someone might have in their family poverty. Okay, so they might be challenged with poverty. Someone in their family might have, there might be marital issues going on, right? So someone might be coming, giving a lecture in the masjid, but at home, you know, they might be in the process, maybe they're getting into divorce or something like that, correct? And then you have from within, and from within, a person might have challenges inside their own mind, right? So they might become very sad or they might become you know, depressed at a situation or they, they don't believe this can happen and so on and so forth. So the challenges are from within. So for the Prophet wasallam, I'm going to give you some examples of each of these categories. So for the first category, the intimate, I'll give you the example of two things and the challenges that the Prophet wasallam faced. And indeed, we have a great example in the example of the Prophet wasallam. The first one is with regards to wealth. So the Prophet now a lot of times people, when, when we're talking about money and so on and so forth, people think that immediately that in Islam that poverty is encouraged. And that's not the case. Okay, poverty is not encouraged, but at the same time, it's not that in order to become Muslim you have to be wealthy, otherwise like, you're, there's no place for you in an Islam. Okay, so it's, it's like both sides of the coin. If you have, for example, an iftar in a masjid, I don't know how what the case is here, but sometimes you have in the iftar, even though it might be an open iftar, there will only be like a certain class of people that come to the iftar. Like family members and, and sorry, family friends and so on and so forth. They're the ones coming to the iftar. Do the homeless people feel welcome to come into that iftar? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know what the situation here is, but from my experience in America, that's not the case. If someone's homeless, they won't feel comfortable coming to the masjid, right? There are other places for them and so on. But however, the Prophet ﷺ, no matter what um, financial status a person was in, they were always welcome. So the Prophet ﷺ, in his own family, months would go by and no fire would be lit. So they'd say like for three months, one after the other after other, there would be nothing to be cooked in the household of the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ used to make dua. He would say, 
Allahumma ja'al rizqa ali muhammadan quta which means O oh Allah make the provision the rizq of the family of Muhammad qutan which means like just enough just enough so qutan it wasn't like poverty to the point because when someone doesn't have enough for themselves they're not very generous okay and then when someone has too much that also they can become a tyrant sometimes if they have too much but the key is to have just enough so the person is always you know they have just enough and they're making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala day after day still asking Allah for more and more this is an interesting observation that I that I had about Hajj in going to Hajj I noticed that you know you have regular very kind people you know they're coming from Europe they're coming from all these different countries but two things will like disconnect their brain from their body <laughs> two things if this happens to them then in Hajj time they will lose their control those those two things are if they have uncertainty in their food supply or if they have uncertainty in their shelter okay food and shelter so what uh, the example in Hajj is if someone goes to the like the washroom for example goes to the bathroom and comes back and someone is in their spot like their their spot has been taken or they come with their bags oh it's Hajj time and stuff like that and there's no there's no spot for them in the tents like people can lose their minds when their shelter is in question okay and the other time would be like if there's food let's say there's 30 people and the Hajj group brings like 23 dinner boxes you don't see people too generous at that point. Everybody's like, oh, I got mine. Oh, you didn't get yours, that's too bad. <laughs> All right, so it's, and I, and it's always been my, uh, you know, in those situations, it's a test from Allah subhanahu you're being tested in your food and shelter. If there's only 23 boxes, there's 30 people, and you give your food to someone else, this is what will happen to you. What do you think will happen to you if you did that? They're going to eat from that little dinner box and because you know five or six people didn't eat the Hajj group will go and get like the best food ordered out and about a half an hour later you'll get like they would have eaten their dinner box and went to sleep and you get like a proper meal like better than the meal that they had and this is another one for the shelter issue if you're in Hajj time you know there's like you know you're 30 people and there's room in your tent for two people and they're stuffing everybody into those two people there's gonna be like six seven 16 or 17 people that didn't get a spot be patient and a tent will open up for you that has like more room than you can ever imagine so you're being tested and but what I'm saying is that when people poverty is not something that you know is like you're not aiming for it because when people get to that level where they're really in need they're not very generous because like you know like basic instincts come in of food and shelter the Prophet ﷺ, even in that situation if there was difficulty for the family he would still give sadaqah and to give you an example of that a woman came to Aisha and she had two daughters and she asked Aisha for some food Aisha is very young in Medina and she said the only thing I could find was one date you know that you know dates like in iftar time you like we just bypass the dates where's the ruwafsa or where's like all these other things right you're looking for, but the dates they only have one date and and i'm reflecting on this she gave it to that woman 
she gave it to the woman, even though she only had one date in the house, she gave it to the woman, and that woman took the date, divided it into two, and gave one to one, uh, one of her daughters and one to the other daughter and didn't eat anything herself. And I'll talk about this in a second here, because Aisha was so impressed with that woman that she told the Prophet about her. It was about the daughters, because it was two girls. And the Prophet said that, because she was so impressed that the mother didn't even eat anything herself. Like she preferred her children and didn't eat herself. And there was only like, um, you know, this date. And the Prophet said, whoever is tested and, and raises these girls until, you know, they grow to their maturity, they will be uh, a protection for them from hellfire. Right? And then, and then that mother, the Prophet said that she would have Jannah because of the way she was taking care of her, her daughters. In another example, it is in the Quran, the Muhajireen, those who migrated to Medina, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لِلْفُقَرَاءِ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described them as, you know, financially they didn't have any money. Al-Fuqara, Faqir is someone who doesn't have enough to fulfill their needs. In another hadith, with, you know, with uh, nothing being lit in the household of the Prophet and then someone asked Aisha then how did you sustain yourself? And she said Al-Aswadan, the two black items and she meant the water and dates. So it's like dinner time in the household of the Prophet they sit down, here's a date for everyone and we drink water and that's it. And this is not one meal, you're talking about maybe multiple months that would pass like this. This is how they ate, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But realize though that there were times, now if the Prophet sallallahu is just waiting for a moment where a big influx of money comes in and then he'd keep it for himself, then he would have done it, but that didn't happen. So for example, in some of the battles, they would get an influx of wealth and the Prophet sallallahu would give that wealth to people who just recently become Muslim. Okay, so for example, in uh, Hunayn, in the Battle of Hunayn, which is like after Mecca, after the conquest of Mecca, these are people that fought the Prophet all these years, and right after that, they, um, they conquered in Hunayn, and the Prophet took like 100 camels, you're talking about it's like equivalent of like 100,000 like pounds, and he gave it to someone who just became Muslim. So now if the Prophet was accumulating wealth and just like trying to build like a stockpile for himself, he would have took things for him like that. And there were companions who had that wealth that could have given that to the Prophet So they were wealthy, but it just depends on when we say wealth, what does it mean? It means like what are you spending it on? So the Prophet is spending on the da'wah. So when he gets the money, he'll spend it. So an example of this, the Prophet is in Salah, and then right after Salah, the Prophet ﷺ gets up and immediately leaves the masjid. It scared the companions. And I want you to recognize, like a lot of times when we do our Salah, there's always someone like jumps up and runs out of the masjid, right? Doesn't do their sunnah prayer, so they just go. When we see that happening, an okay, example like Jummah Salah. Right, Jummah Salah, oh we have some announcements, please brothers sit down. They're, everybody's like rushing to the doors. Where are they going? Where are they going? On a Jummah prayer, everybody rushing out of the masjid. Where are they going? I'm looking for my good students that answer the questions properly and loudly. <laughs> Where are they? Yes, brother. What's that? They're going back to work. They have business to attend to. 
So the Prophet ﷺ jumps up running out like this. What's the business that he's attending to? He comes back وسلم, and he sees the fear on their faces and then he tell them, tell, like reassures them that, you know, don't worry. He said, in Salah, I remembered that I had some wealth that I needed to distribute in Zakah, to distribute in Sadaqah. He said, so it preoccupied him in the Salah that immediately after Salah he ran home so that it, and commanded that it be distributed. This is what's preoccupying him, sallallahu alayhi wa So the question is, were they wealthy? Yes, they were wealthy, but they spent that wealth for the sake of the da'wah and for the sake of Islam. So surrounding the Prophet was Khadija. You'll notice all the business people related in, like in the family of the Prophet Khadija anha, was like the owner of these caravans and the Prophet had worked for her. So he was a businessman, she was a businesswoman and the closest friend to the Prophet was Abu Bakr anhu, and he was a businessman as well. And so they had the wealth, but they were using it for the sake of the da'wah. Okay? So this is the challenge. In the Battle of Al-Ahzab, which took place in Medina, the Muslims, as they were digging the trench, it's the, it's the Battle of the Trench, they were digging a trench around Medina, and the poverty that the Muslims were in, they were so hungry that they would wrap stones around their stomach, because when the hunger pains would come in, they would wrap the stones to like hold their stomachs, to not feel the full intensity of that, of the hunger pain. And then when they would see the Prophet وسلم, he had two stones surrounding his stomach Alright, so if you have any financial difficulties or, or things like this, you have in the example of the Prophet وسلم, a great example. There's a dua, and my guess is someone's going to ask me to repeat it afterwards so they can write it down. So inshallah ta'ala, if you go on the Al-Maghrib forums, and say, what's that dua for someone who has debt? And someone will tell you, inshallah ta'ala. Alright, so look out for it. Someone's going to ask it on the Al-Maghrib forums. One of your brothers and sisters is going to tell you, inshallah ta'ala. The Prophet said to one of the companions, even if they had debt the size of Mount so-and-so, that this dua, Allah would you know, take care of them in their debt. The, the dua is, Allahumma kfina bihalalika an haramik. Allahumma kfina bihalalika an haramik. That, oh Allah, suffice us with your halal from your haram. Right? That those things that are haram, let the halal be enough for us. Wa aghnina bifadlika amman siwak. Wa aghnina bifadlika amman siwak. And enrich us by your fadl, by your like virtue, by your, by your mercy, and so on. Amman siwak from anyone other than you. Right, so enrich us so that that it suffices for us. Your fadl is enough for us that we don't need anyone else. That was the dua the Prophet ﷺ taught. So even in debt, you, you, know, you learn the dua, you're making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you out of this situation. Alright, the death of family members. Death of family members. So these issues, these are common issues. When someone's sad, someone is going through hardships in their lives, these are... Um, they have in the example of the Prophet ﷺ, the best example. So as we said, the Prophet ﷺ, all his children died in his lifetime except Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha. One of the, the deaths, the first death that we'll talk about is Abu Talib. And SubhanAllah, I'll give you an example. There was a brother, someone told me, they said, you know so-and-so? And I said, yes, I know him. He said, his father died. And when you're like, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon, right? 
And then he said, but he also said to remind the people not to make dua for his father. Because his father didn't die Muslim. You know, normally when someone dies, you're like praying for them and so on and so forth. And this is like someone who had received the message of Islam multiple times. His, his son was very active in the community. Like everybody knows his son. But his father had insisted on dying as a disbeliever. And he died, you know, I think he accidentally like shot, he had like a gun in his house and shot himself. And then we went to the masjid, like kind of like uh, console the brother and so on and so forth. At this masjid, normally they don't let me speak at this masjid. <laughs> but for some reason they were, you know, they had nothing to say. And they invited me to give a speech. And subhanAllah, I did not want to speak. Because I had nothing to say. If it was a Muslim family member, you could talk for like, you know, hours and hours consoling the person. But I thought to myself, how can you console someone who had a family member so close to them that died on Kufa? I kept thinking of angles, and I said, there is no consolement. This is really sad. Your father died on Kufa. He's in hellfire. And I was like, there's nothing to say. There's no dots you're making, there's nothing. It's your father. And now, you're thinking, now what I'm saying, I said earlier that you won't understand that. You won't understand that unless you have a family member like that that's not Muslim. I don't understand the concept. I was just reflecting on him. I don't have family members like that. May Allah subhanahu wa protect, protect my family, protect your family. But someone who had a family member so close to them like that, uh, you know, an example is, I was in Medina and uh, when I was a student, and there was a brother from Africa who, I remember that you know, the, one of the students was like, he cut off the teacher, and, and you know, his, his dad wrote a letter to him from Africa. And in the letter, he's telling his son, you know, like, just yesterday I became Muslim. And the boy's like crying, and the other brothers are like giving him hugs that his father had become Muslim. And everybody was rejoicing. Imagine a university classroom. And everybody's giving hugs to the brother. You know, like congratulating the brother that his father had become Muslim. Right? Because it's a rejoice. This is your family member, alhamdulillah, that they had died with La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. So the Prophet وسلم, with Abu Talib, where he kept insisting to him to become Muslim, Abu Talib defended the Prophet وسلم, and protected him. And you, you'll see, inshallah ta'ala, as we're talking about the sanctions that they put against them, Abu Talib was in the sanctions with the Prophet. وسلم. Yet, after all of that, the reason he's defending the Prophet وسلم, is out of his love for the Prophet, not out of sincerity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, the intentions are not for Allah, it's for, you know, he would love the Prophet, just, you know, natural human love. And so on his deathbed, the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Say la ilaha illallah, a statement that I will, I will defend you upon, on this statement, on the Day of Judgment. And then you had his other brothers who are on kufr who are saying, are you going to choose a religion other than the religion of Abdul Muttalib? And then Abu Talib, his final words were, he has died on the religion of Abdul Muttalib, which was the worship of the idols. And then the Prophet ﷺ said that I'm going to ask Allah forgiveness for him so long as I'm not forbidden from doing so. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse that it's not for the Prophet, 
it is not for the Prophet and those who believe to ask forgiveness for the polytheists, for the mushrikeen. وَلَوْ كَانُوا قُرْبَى Even if they were near of kin. After Abu Talib, you see that the Prophet ﷺ, the da'wah has just begun. Who is the one who's consoling him during this time? Into whose arms does he come back to at the end of the day? To Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha. The mother of all his children. You imagine that he's giving da'wah and taking on this and at home, she's taking care of the children and so on. And in these years in Mecca, the early years, Khadija radiallahu anha died. Now his wife is dead. And he buries his wife. And it's a father with his daughters carrying this message of Islam. And I'll talk later about Khadija radiallahu anha. Out of his uncles, out of his uncles, Abu Talib was kind to him but yet didn't believe. The uncle that believed in him was Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu. The other uncle that believed in him was who? Who was the other uncle? Who knows? Yes? Al-Abbas. Al-Abbas was the other uncle who believed in the Prophet ﷺ, yet that was later in Medina, conquest of Mecca. So, you know, he had his Iman, but he was still there in Mecca. But Hamza anhu was the one who truly defended the Prophet ﷺ and had traveled with him to Medina all these years defending and helping the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Uhud when the tables were turned and then the Prophet ﷺ was walking over the Muslims that had been killed. You're talking about like these are your best friends that are there. This person, Mus'ab radiallahu anhu is killed. This person is killed. And then he stands on the body of Hamza radiallahu anhu. His stomach had been opened up. His intestine, his, his um, body parts taken out. His face cut off, mutilated. And the Prophet said that I've never stood on a more sadder moment than the day I saw Hamza radiallahu anhu. His uncle, Sayyid al-Shuhada, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And then you have his children, sallallahu alayhi wa his children, the, the daughters had died in, in later years, but still, subhanAllah, they'll say, you know, you have between a parent and the child. And the scholars will always say that if you want to know how much haq you have to your parents, how much uh, right you owe to your parents, then look at what would happen if you died during their lifetime. They would never, like you would be in their remembrance all the time. They would, every party they would go to, they would remember you. Every time someone would talk to us, they would say, my son so-and-so that passed away, or my daughter so-and-so that passed away. And when the opposite happens, normally like son or daughter, they're not doing that in response. But now the Prophet ﷺ, all of his children, in his lifetime, he buried them. Except Fatima radiallahu anha. And then you have... Towards the end of the Prophet ﷺ's life, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed him with a baby boy, Ibrahim. The beautiful thing about Maria, who is the uh, wife of the Prophet ﷺ, when uh, she had come from Egypt and she was married to the Prophet ﷺ, she had heard the stories like Hajar was also like, uh, given to Ibrahim, Hajar, and she had Ismail. And Maria, you know, knowing that she had her role model. Her role model was Hajar. And so she had the son of the Prophet ﷺ, Ibrahim. Named him Ibrahim. And then in that first year that Ibrahim was born, he died at that time. And the Prophet ﷺ held Ibrahim's body as Ibrahim died in his hands. 
And the Prophet started crying. And they asked the Prophet about those tears. And he said, He said that the eyes tear and the heart is sad. And then he said, He said, but we'll say nothing except that which is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَإِنَّا بِفَرَاقِكَ يَا إِبْرَاهِيمَ لَمَحْزُونُونَ And indeed, in your departure, O Ibrahim, we are sad. And this is, subhanAllah, you, you see the best example in the Prophet Someone has a family member that dies, and they'll say, Oh, if you cry, that means what? You don't believe in the hereafter? You know, it doesn't mean you don't believe that you know, your child died and is going to Jannah? That, it doesn't mean that. It's the natural sadness. But it's not an exaggerated sadness where a woman, for example, might have a child die and then say things against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or say things displeasing to Allah. It's that natural sadness, sallallahu alayhi wa And subhanAllah, on the day that Ibrahim died, there was an eclipse of the sun. The sun eclipsed. And of course, the Prophet sallallahu sad. The, all of Medina is sad to the sadness of the Prophet sallallahu and so the sun eclipsed on that day, and then everybody said, the people were saying that the sun eclipsed to the death of Ibrahim. And the Prophet ﷺ, they did the eclipse prayer. The Prophet ﷺ said, the sun does not eclipse for the death or life of any of you. He corrected them. Even though his son had died that day, he's still teaching them the correct beliefs. We do not say that the sun has eclipsed because of the death or the life of anybody. This is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it's not related to the life or death of anyone. So in those moments, he's still teaching them the proper aqidah and we have, and, and I'll give you an example of this. Sometimes someone will say something, right? They'll say something like, let's say a husband and wife, they're arguing, arguing, the husband says, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then a lightning bolt, lightning, like there's like, and then the wife says, see, <laughs> I told you, you shouldn't have said that. Now, did that lightning bolt have anything to do with the statement of the person? And the answer is no, but these are superstitions that people have. They will associate, you know, a lightning bolt, oh, because you said this, that's why the lightning bolt happened like that. Or the sun eclipsed because, you know, this happened or that happened. That these aren't happening because of your statements, life and death, and so on and so forth. And then, on top of this, is the death of the Prophet himself. As Allah says, وَمَا جَعَلْنَا لِبَشَرٍ مِّن قَبْلِكَ الْخُلْدِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we've never given a person before you al-khuld, which is to live forever. That if you die, are they the ones who are going to be living forever? Everyone's going to die. And the death of the Prophet is the biggest musibah to happen to the Ummah. The biggest calamity to befall the Ummah was the death of the Prophet The Prophet said, this hadith, إِذَا مَاتَ وَلَدُ الْعَبْدِ قَالَ اللَّهُ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ In this hadith, the Prophet said that if someone has a child that has died, so let's say a mother, father, they have a child, one of their, their babies has died. SubhanAllah, I, I, I remember there was um, a brother that I was, you know, I was consulting with, and one week, you know, I, he just went out of town, didn't tell me, and so on, and he said, 
that, uh, you know, when I found out later, he said my uncle had died and I had to leave immediately. And he was telling me on the phone, he's like, this uncle is very close to me, and, and so I'm very close to my mother. And it was a big shock for the family. The week right after that, his, uh, him and his wife gave birth to a baby boy. And I said, SubhanAllah, one call, we're talking about death. And one call, we're talking about life. I was talking with them, like, we had calls every week, or every two weeks. And then after that, you know, and the rejoice, the baby boy, and so on and so forth. And then one week later, he calls me. And he's crying. And he said, Muhammad, today my son died. And subhanAllah, that this isn't something that Allah has tested me with. May Allah protect us. But for some of you, this, was, this is the case. You would have had a, a child, and he was telling me that he was holding his boy. He took him to the hospital. He's feeling sick. And as he was holding him in his hands, he said all of a sudden his body felt limp. And he said, I knew something was wrong. And then he ran back into like the like operating and so on, and he told the doctors, something's wrong, take him. And he said that that moment, his son's soul had been taken. Once he went out, he was already dead when they put him there. But he had died in his hands. Death, life, and death within a three-week span. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests the people and Allah, this is a hadith Qudsi where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the angels when one of the sons dies that هَلْ قَبَضْتُمْ وَلَدَ abdi. Allah says to the angels, did you uh, take the life of the child of my slave? And the angels say yes. And then Allah says to them, did you take the life of, you know, like the coolness of the eyes, the fruit of their eyes, the fruit of their heart? And the angels say yes. Then Allah says to the angels, what did my slave say? And the angels say, Hamadaka wastarja. He thanked you and stepped back from saying anything wrong. He did hamd. He said, Alhamdulillah, wastarja is like step back. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the angels, go to Jannah and build a home in Jannah for my slave and name that home Baytul Hamd, the home of thankfulness. And so indeed, if someone has a child that has died to them, and yet they were patient, and they sought the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, number one, if you have a child that has died, you know that they're going to Jannah. So the thing that you will care about most for your child is that they will enter paradise. And if they die as a child, then they've ne they haven't committed any sins, it's guaranteed that they went to Jannah. After that, if you're patient to their death, and you step back, and you're hoping for that reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then to you will be Jannah as well. That they will be your ticket to Jannah because of your patience over their death. This happened to the Prophet As these years are going by, he's burying child after child after child. As we said, in the Battle of Badr, he's burying his daughter. And in Medina, he's burying Ibrahim and all the other children had passed away. Now, that's talking about like intimate. That's like in his own family. Now when it comes to external, right? These are external opponents and challenges. Externally, you have the community abuse of the Prophet Some people, once they start getting involved in a masjid, I remember when I was younger, there was, you know, there was an uncle in the masjid that nobody knew and nobody cared about until he became the president of the masjid. And then soon after that, I found everybody backbiting on him. And I thought to myself, you know, as a young child, I thought nobody said anything about him, 
you know, like one week before he was like president and so on and so on. But because he took on responsibility, he became like everybody wanted to like poke at him now. Everybody wanted to talk about him because he took on the responsibility. Normally what people do is they seclude the community, right? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? As soon as they, I don't want to go to the message because when I go to the message, people start talking about me and stuff. So I'm not going to do anything. Let's just seclude ourselves. And subhanAllah, even after 9-11, as one sheikh was saying that, you know, Muslims had different reactions. Obviously, there's like abuse from the community now to the Muslim here. What does the Muslim do in response? They're like, like one of the responses is that a Muslim will leave their deen. Right? So if a woman's wearing hijab after 9-11, people are abusing her, like, forget this hijab. Right? Look, I'm just like you now. Be pleased with me, O human beings. So there's that, there's that style, okay? Which is a person leaving their deen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. Then you have another style which is like aggressiveness. So a Muslim might come on TV and start talking all aggressive and aggressive and aggressive and aggressive and aggressive. And they're usually like in jail soon after that. <laughs> all right? Because everybody's looking to put someone in jail. This guy's talking all aggressive. So, and I'm talking like uh, uh, verbally aggressive. If someone was like physically aggressive, obviously, you know, that's, that's like super dangerous stuff. But talking aggressively, that's not like going to change things. In fact, I would say that that even emphasizes all the stereotypes that people have about Muslims. Angry men. <laughs> and then this guy is a man who is angry. <laughs> like, great, you just proved to everybody they were right. <laughs> Muslims are angry men. And then the third, the third style is the style that the majority of Muslims would adopt. It's called seclusion. Close the blinds, shut the doors, hide yourself. <laughs> Close, you know, get tinted windows and just drive like ambassadors to the masjid and go back home and don't let anybody see you, right? Does that work? Does that work? No, they take a brick and throw it through your window, right? It doesn't work. So seclusion is typically what people will do when they get abuse from the community. What did the Prophet do when they started abusing him? Because when you understand that answer, you understand what's required of you. He didn't do any of the above. He didn't seclude himself because people were abusing him. He didn't, you know, just like be aggressive with them. And he didn't leave his message of Islam, which is what they wanted him to do. He didn't leave it. The fourth option is calling to Allah with patience. As Luqman said to his son in the Quran, he said, وَأْمُرْ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَانْهَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَاصْبِرْ عَلَى مَا أَصَابَكَ He said, command the good, forbid the evil, and be patient to that which will harm you. Because it, is, it comes with the territory. It comes with the territory that when you command the good and forbid the evil, that people are going to hurt you. And they will find every which way, and every which way that they will try to hurt you, you have the best example in the Prophet ﷺ, people did that to him. So how are they going to hurt you? So let's say, for example, you're in a community where everybody is like doing some shirki type of stuff. You guys have an example of that? Shirki type of stuff in your community? That if you tried saying anything to everybody, they'd just go whack on you. Not shirki stuff, but let's say like little haram stuff, like pawn, for example. <laughs> Okay, there's a difference of opinion about pawn. Is there an example of that? Talk like, let's say straight out like something shirk. That people like defend. As soon as you start talking about it, they get all like... What else? Okay, that's good. A grave worshipping. 
Okay, grave worshiping. <laughs> I was with a group of people that do grave worshiping, and I was talking to them, and then I'm like, you know when people grave worship, and then they're like, what do you mean grave worship? <laughs> and, then, and then the guy corrected me, he's like, we're not worshiping the graves, we're respecting the graves. <laughs> okay, so you might be in a culture where if you say anything about you know, the situation, it might be like, a, yeah, I'm not gonna go into details of it, but you guys get the idea then the community will start abusing. How will they abuse the person? Firstly, they will ridicule them. They start mocking them, right, and hurting them. They'll backbite on them and spread uh, rumors about them and so on and so forth. They might physically harm the person. So like in some villages and area, if someone's uh, commanding the good, forbidding the evil, there might be like gangs of people that would gather and go and beat this person up for speaking like this physical harm, and then they might harm the person in their own family. So maybe the person will still keep doing their da'wah, and then they'll say, you know what, let's go hurt the person's daughters. Let's go hurt his family members. And they'll start to hurt the person like that. So all of these things happen to the Prophet So examples of these, even though you might want to step back and seclude yourself, you don't want to be harmed by the words, the criticism of the people, and so on and so forth. You've got to face it and be patient and move forward, even though people have said that. SubhanAllah, I was like, um, you know, sometimes in the Muslim community, you have people online that have just, like, lost their mind. And they, you know, like, if you get involved in the da'wah, and someone doesn't like you from this group or that group, I'm sorry, non-Muslim groups, they might actually publish all your details on their mailing list. You know what I'm talking about? They'll, they'll put your, like, oh, so-and-so is a radical Muslim fundamentalist and so on. He lives at, you know, 42, 47, you know, Lily Road. And he's like, uh, you know, he lives in London. This is his phone number if you ever want to call him and, and so on. And then they'll say, and his wife is, you know, Hafsa such and such. She lives at this address. She attends school. This is where she goes to school. This is her picture. If you ever want to beat her up on the way to school, I mean, that's up to you. And they'll start going on and start, um, you know, harming the person in themselves and in their family. You would want to seclude yourself, but seclusion is not the way. In, uh, in, in this path of da'wah, there was a time, it came hard times on, on us. And I remember at that time, you know, people, it's natural, you want to seclude yourself. And I was with some brothers, they'll say, hey, you know what, let's go low. No, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. And I was like, last man back. I'm like, if you, all of you want to seclude yourself, I can't seclude myself anymore. My name's already on the internet. <laughs> they know my address, so it's too late. But I said that this da'wah is not for people that want to seclude themselves. If you want no harm to come to you, no harm, zero, then technically just leave your deen <laughs> if you want no harm. Leave your deen, go out, and hopefully some human being will give you love. And that's probably not even going to be the case anyway, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said um, that they'll never be pleased with you until you follow their millah, until you follow their path. So this, this deen, it's like you're, you are going to be harmed. And subhanAllah, I was traveling one place, some, one of these groups had, you know, we we're doing an event, and some like radical group from the other side was like called the event, no sorry, they wrote an article, and about you know, me and so on and so forth. And these people were searching online, they found that article, and they were like, Muhammad al-Sharif is some radical blah, 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 so we're canceling your, the Muslim community's contract. And then I thought to myself, you know, when the brother told me this, I thought to myself, the verse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, 
where Allah says, uh, They cannot harm you except with like annoyances. Like the harm that they, is just an annoyance. You're annoying. <laughs> That's it. Right? But when you look at it, like what harm are they really doing? Okay, so they wrote an article and stuff like that. Okay, other than that, what harm have they done? Right? It's just annoyance, of course. Once they can't do things with all those annoyance, then it goes to like physical, which is what happened with the Prophet and companions. Aisha asked the Prophet was the hardest day in your da'wah, the day of Uhud? A day when 70 of the companions were killed shaheed. And the Prophet said, no. The day, the hardest day in the da'wah was the day of a ta'if. And we'll be talking about a ta'if where they had expelled him from the city, they threw rocks, the people, so it's not just one or two people expelled, the whole community is stoning the Prophet The children using swear words against the Prophet and, and expelling him from their city. This was in a ta'if. You also, in his test, in all of these things, you're going to be need, you'll need to strive, okay? You're going to need to strive for the da'wah, and with that striving, you will get harms. This is something, subhanAllah, you know, imagine you want to do a zakah foundation. Here in London, you want to do a zakah foundation, okay? Do you think that everybody is going to be happy about this? That's what you think. You think everybody would love for you to be happy. And actually, I'm going to put in a special note here. Because there was a sister once, she's like, I have this great idea for a zakah foundation. I'm like, sister, they're going to knock you out. The community is going to eat you alive if you're anywhere slightly successful. How can, you know, how can someone have noble intentions, yet the community eat them alive? I said, because you're dealing with the M word. That's money. And the Muslim community is like shot in their brain when it comes to money. They cannot leave alone someone who deals with money. Even if it's zakah. So now, if a, if a Muslim organization, let's say, if you spend any penny on your staff, the community will eat you alive. Do you agree? Because some of you already do it. <laughs> Correct? If there's an organization, a zakah organization, that spends on their employees, you might already be spreading rumors about them. Do you guys agree with me? Allah said that they're allowed to spend on their employees. Allah said it's halal. And those who work for the distribution of zakah. Allah gave it to them. Yet our communities, you'll see for example, they'll say, don't give your money to an organization that spends on themselves. Give it to us, 100% of your money goes to charity. Putting down the organizations that, that spend on themselves. Do you, do you under, how many people understand what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? I'm telling you right now to chill out from being a part of that culturally accepted backbiting. Don't be a part of it. So when someone tells you organizations such and such, oh, they spend on their employees, you tell the person, ittaqillah. If you're Allah, don't speak like this. Right? If you have some proof, then take it to the Muslim judge if they're doing some wrongdoing. But if Allah gave them from that, they have an emir who's distributing the money to you know, the poor, the needy, and those who are working for the distribution of zakah, Allah gave them that wealth. And so because our community eats alive, people who do this, nobody wants to deal with zakah. Yeah, so you don't see too much charity going on. Everybody backs away from it because the community is not going to allow this to happen. And so from the community abuse as well is in Medina, the munafiqeen. The munafiqeen. 
If you're ever in like a gathering, sometimes there will be someone in the gathering that you wish, like their presence in the gathering is making you so sad, even though everything surrounding it would make you happy. Right? So an example of this, I know the sisters would understand this. Let's say there's an auntie that's always asking you why you're not married. <laughs> and sisters know exactly, and some of the brothers as well, not that brother that had his hand up yesterday, but other people. They're always saying, so when you, are you not married yet? Why not? Something wrong with you? What does the sister want to do? She wants to seclude herself because of this. Because people keep doing this to each other, they just want to seclude themselves. They don't invite anybody and so on and so forth. Or if the sister is married, then the other question is, when are you going to have children? Like, you still don't have kids? What's wrong? Are you taking like pills or something? <laughs> and they won't leave you alone because even if you have six kids, when was the last time you had kids? It's been three years. What's wrong? Why can't you have kids? And they just keep doing that, right? In these gatherings, sometimes there's a person that you just despise. And the gathering will be so fun and happy and so on and so forth. And then this auntie is invited to it. She's like, she was there to like, like beat you up and, and make sure that no matter what, you will not enjoy yourself. The Prophet ﷺ had people like that in his midst. They were the munafiqeen. And so in Medina, the Prophet ﷺ would say something, and the munafiqeen, for example, all the Prophet ﷺ would be talking, they'd say something like, could you stop talking, please? You know, you're hurting our ears. Or the Prophet ﷺ would come, this is, um, this is in Sahih Muslim, where the Prophet ﷺ came with his mule, and he came to the area, and one of the munafiqeen said to the Prophet ﷺ, you know, can you get away? Your, your donkey stinks, and you're hurting us by the smell of your donkey. They're saying this to the Prophet And one of the companions you know, says back to that uh, munafiq, that hypocrite, saying that, no, you stink more than the donkey stinks. <laughs> and then they start, you know, this person is pushing that person back and forth. They take off their sandals, start hitting each other. And so they're in the midst of the Prophet like these small like, skirmishes would, would take place. But yet when the Prophet ﷺ would go, the munafiq, this munafiq person, if the Prophet ﷺ would begin speaking, he'd stand up in the masjid and say, everybody please gather closer. He's the munafiq. And everybody knows he's a munafiq. He would say, everybody please gather. You know, Muhammad's going to speak to us beautiful words. Please, you know, listen to him and so on and so forth. It's like munafiq coming up on, on the stage and like, and everybody knows he's the munafiq. And then a little into the speech of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, speech, he would say, you know, could you please stop talking? And this is happening consistently. The Muslims would go out for a battle, and there would be like munafiqeen amongst them saying like, oh, look at, look at these uh, qurra, right? This is an incident that happened in which in the battle, after the battle, they're, they're speaking amongst themselves. They're like, look at these companions. Arghabuna butunan. Uh, they said, what's the situation of our, our, of our qurra, like are the reciters, meaning like they mean the companions of the Prophet meaning like they want to eat so much. And they're much more cowardly than any of us when it comes time for battle. And this is what they're saying amongst themselves and they're laughing and one of the companions says, I'm going to go tell the Messenger of Allah. And then when he went there, he found that Allah had revealed verses about them and what they had said. They said, if you ask them about it, they will say that we're just joking. 
Isn't that interesting when someone else will insult someone else? I'm like, I'm just joking. Sister, you're not married? Oh, I'm just joking. Don't take offense. Dude, you're so, like, sensitive. <laughs> right? So this is what they're saying in response. We're just joking. We're just joking. And Allah says, if you ask them, they will say, إِنَّمَا كُنَّا نَخُودُ Nahudu is like playing in puddles. It's just like, you know, tapping water and stuff. نَخُودُ وَنَلَعْبُ We're just playing. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said the response, قُلْ أَبِ اللَّهِ وَآيَاتِي وَرَسُولِي كُنْتُمْ تَسْتَهْزِئُونَ That is it in Allah, in His signs and in His messengers, that you are mocking, لَا تَعْتَذِرُوا You will not be pardoned, قَدْ كَفَرْتُمْ بَعْدِ إِيمَانِكُمْ You've disbelieved after your iman. And so we know that to mock Islam, to mock the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger of Allah and the companions is kufr. It's kufr to make mockery. And just joking is not going to absolve the person of these things. And so this was, you'll see like in Sahih Muslim, it says, Bab, like there's a chapter, it says, Fi dua al munafiqeen and fi dua munafiq. Right? That you know, a chapter about the Prophet calling the munafiqeen to Islam and his patience in the harm that the munafiqeen gave to him. And you see chapters in the books of hadith of what they did to the Prophet. And so the abuse, even though the, Muslim, the community is Muslim, they're still in that community, munafiqeen. You have we, what we said in Mecca where they're calling him Mudhammam, uh, which is like the opposite of the praised one, they became, it became his um, label. Even in our communities, like if someone becomes religious, what do they call them? If someone's religious, it'll change different. They might, in some culture, they'll call him Malvi, right? They're all like, oh, Malvi Saab or Sufi Saab or, <laughs> or um, what else? Mulana Saab. There's always a Saab at the end there. Do you guys have Saab in the car? And <laughs> in other cultures, like in Saudi, for example, they call them, this is really interesting. If you become religious in Saudi, they call you Wahhabi <laughs> amongst themselves. And, and I'm like, like, it's like, step out of the country, you're all Wahhabi. <laughs> right? So if some guy is going around telling all his friends in school, you're Wahhabi, you're Wahhabi, and then he goes to America and, and they see that he has like Saudi national, he's Wahhabi straight out. All right? So they'll call him Wahhabi in Saudi, they'll also call him Mutawa. Right? That's another word that they'll use, Mutawa. Mutawa means volunteer. Um, so these labels are used as mockery and to ridicule the person. So as soon as someone starts becoming religious, immediately they get ridiculed. If you're in a, like in a household that doesn't wear hijab, what happens to you know, all your sisters and well, nobody's wearing hijab, and then one girl starts wearing hijab? What will they do to her? We're so happy you're wearing hijab. You know, this makes us all happy. No, because it's like they take it as an attack against them, and then they will ridicule this person if they miss any salah, they miss any, they'll start attacking them, left, right, and center. Right? You wear hijab, and you do this. And, and, or if you have a beard, and you, you know, the people go to you, you have a beard, you have a beard, and you're doing these things, and so on and so forth, right? And then uh, some other situation was the community abuse where the Prophet ﷺ, they were talking about his wife. So in the situation of Aisha anha, they started spreading rumors that Aisha had committed adultery. And it was one of the munafiqeen that spread out the rumor against Aisha anha. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he proved that Aisha anha didn't do it, you'll see the Prophet ﷺ said, who will 
take care of someone who's speaking about my family? What does it mean, take care? Does it mean serve them? Meaning that because he said this, the Prophet was going to kill him for talking like that about his wife. But then amongst the munafiqeen, one of them said, you know, Ya Rasulullah, just tell us and we'll, you know, we'll kill him. And then from the other parts, you know, from the Khazraj, there were two tribes in, in uh, the Ansar. And the other person is saying, you're only saying that because he's like from our tribe and not your tribe. Wallah, you can never kill him. And the other person is like, Wallah, you're a munafiq as well. And they, and they got into this fight amongst themselves. And the Prophet ﷺ quieted them down and then left. And then Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, again we'll be speaking about that. In his own family, he wanted Zainab to migrate to Medina and her husband had agreed that when he'd go back to Mecca, he was freed, he went back to Mecca and then Zainab, Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, she was married to Abu al-As. We said about the other daughters of the Prophet Fatima is married to Ali radiallahu in Medina and then you had Ruqayya and Umm Kulthum. They were divorced by the sons of Abu Lahab and they married Uthman, Ruqayya radiallahu anha married Uthman and when she died, her sister married Uthman radiallahu anhu, Umm Kulthum, and she died a few years after that as well. Zainab radiallahu anha, her husband Abu al-As, was told to divorce Zainab and he refused. He was a very noble person. In the battle of Badr, you know, they have to, if they're from Mecca, you have to go on the battle, you can't stay back. Abu al-As was part of that army, of the Mushrik army, and he became one of the prisoners. He became one of the prisoners and the Prophet ﷺ was asking for, like, you know, whoever wanted to ransom this person and ransom that person. Abu al-As had no one except his wife Zainab who would take care of him. So Zainab had a piece of jewelry that her mother had given her on her marriage. You know how like when a woman gets married, the mother says, this is the family jewelry and, you know, and this is my gift to you on your marriage. Her mother is whom? Khadija radiallahu anha. At this point, Khadija radiallahu anha had died many years before this, about, about eight years after Khadija radiallahu anha had died, this situation, the Battle of Badr took place. And the Prophet Zainab put her, the jewelry that Khadija had given her on the day of her marriage so that she could free her husband. And the Prophet when he saw that piece of jewelry, he remembered Khadija and he started crying. Because now this jewelry is going to go into the... Um, he remembered Khadija the jewelry is going to go into the general, you know, the spoils of war and so on and so forth. And the Prophet ﷺ said to the companions, he said, if you wish, it is your choice, if you wish to free her slave and give her back her ransom, give her back the jewelry. The companions agreed. Companions agreed, they gave back the jewelry to Zainab anha. Abu al-As was freed and he had an agreement with the Prophet ﷺ that he had an agreement that when he would go back, that he would send Zainab to Medina. Because it was not permissible for a believing woman to live with a disbelieving man. And Abu al-As, this is the Prophet's son-in-law. Even though he was with the, you know, he's in the, the kafir, but he agreed to do this. So when he went back to, um, when he went back to Mecca, he prepared Zainab radiallahu anhu, his wife, and you know, prepared her with, with, his, um, with his own brother, Zainab's brother-in-law, and they went out to do hijrah to Medina. At this point, Quraysh, they sent two people, two people from Quraysh, 
they sent them to block the hijra of Zainab. And they started throwing spears at her. They threw spears. This is Prophet Sallallahu daughter. They threw spears at her. They hit her with the spear. She fell off her riding animal. And she was pregnant at that time. She had a miscarriage. And they brought her back. And Abu Sufyan had said to Abu Al-As, he said, we can't allow the daughter of Muhammad to go and do hijra and, and migrate to Medina in such an open way. And he told them, look, just bring her back. And then in the darkness when nobody sees, he's like, you know, we'll let her go at a later point. You'll find in Sahih Bukhari, the Prophet the Prophet said, In wajadtum fulanan wa fulanan binnar. The Prophet said, if you find so and so and so and so, then burn them to death with fire. It's in Sahih Bukhari. Who were those two people the Prophet was talking about? They were the people that stood in the path of Zainab. You can see the anger of the Prophet. You don't touch his family members. And then the next day, the companion said that the next day they were going to go out. And the Prophet said, Yesterday, I told you that if you find so and so and so and so to burn them with fire. He said, he said, verily the fire is the punishment of Allah and no one is allowed to punish with the punishment of Allah. And he said, so don't burn them, but rather just kill them. And so that they wouldn't, in, in Islam, you're not allowed to harm anybody with fire. And this is the, the delil for it, the proof of it is this situation. You can't tell your child, for example, oh, don't play near the stove, and then you're like, you want me to show you, and then you take like a, a, a match and burn their finger or something like that as a punishment for them. Inshallah, you'll never do something like that, but I'm just telling you, you cannot burn anybody. You can't even joke and, and harm someone with the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's punishment. And that's an example of the community abuse.